This is your host Shane with another exciting episode of Radical Rocks. Today we'll talk about Neptunite, how to start cutting gems, punkin, moss, agate, gold, and so much more. On the first part of the journey, I was looking at Radical Rocks. There were fossils, minerals, and rocks and things. There were sand, hills, and rings. The first thing I found was a geocrystal. Quartz with no clouds. Agate was hot and the ground was hard. But the gems were there to be found. See, I've been through the desert, found a rock of the name. Felt good to have in my hand. In the desert... That's right, radical rocks are everywhere, and today we are going to talk about a bunch of them. Um, let's just kind of go through the hit list here. This is just some of the topics today. Neptunite, how to start cutting gems, punk and moss agate, the biggest pink diamond found in 300 years, some gold mining stories too, pot of gold mine, Viking fashion, um, and so much more, guys. We're going to talk about all of that and more. So let's get right into it without any further ado. Um, I would like to actually thank everyone for subscribing, liking, and commenting. If you have any suggestions for the show, you may email me at RadicalRocksUSA at gmail.com. Love to hear what you've got in mind for the show. Let me know. I'm willing to change the format or even start up a different format. Um, maybe do more story type themes or more actual shop. I did get a request a long time ago to do more shop stuff. Um, I try to keep it kind of a variety show to keep it interesting and um, give you the latest information in this genre of rocks, minerals, and such. So let's get right into it. Um, Guy, a lot of great news. I do want to say, um, do not forget Mother's Day. Don't forget Mother's Day. Um, If you make something out of gemstones or rocks, or you buy a cabochon already made, and wrap it in something, or do some silversmithing, or even some beading projects by using some uh, lapidary material, that personalization of that gift will be cherished for a lifetime, maybe more, all right? So keep that in mind for mom. Learn you some lapidary skills. Get into it, even if you just got to go to a beading place and get some lapidary beads and uh, maybe create some things that way. All right, the most valuable birthstones from least to most expensive, Brittany Alexandra Sulk tells us at msn.com all about these gemstones. Some of them are being very valuable are from the Smithsonian. The list today that we'll go through, we'll, we'll get as much as we can. I don't know if it's all gemstones, but Peridot is... Supposedly, the least uh, most expensive gem that you would have for a birthstone. Average price says $500 per kilogram. Um, 
per carat, that would be quite a bit less. It says the most expensive peridot stone that they have on record is eighteen thousand uh, dollars. Of course, this depends on how big and spectacular it is, and the cut, and so on and so forth. Peridot is a light green August birthstone, also known as chrysolite. The gem collectors typically go for more valuable green gemstones. Emerald peridot is the most impressive, the darker color. I've never heard peridot called chrysolite, so maybe that's something else. I've heard of it called olivine. Olive tone color can be strikingly rich. Complete clear specimens can be turned into some fairly expensive jewelry. Now, amethyst is number 11. It represents the month of February. A kilogram of this can be up to $600, and the most expensive amethyst may be between $300,000 and $400,000. Amethyst is one that, a stone that can be found all over the place in many stores and things like that. Very hard, seven on the hardness scale. Next is Topaz, representing November. Per price here, they have $24,000 per kilogram, but I know for a fact you can buy Topaz much cheaper than that that hasn't already been faceted. Topaz is a silica mineral. It can come in nearly every color and shade. It says here a hardness of about 8. Um, colorless Topaz is virtually worthless, while red, blue, orange Topaz can be quite valuable. Highly pigmentated topaz specimens are most prized, increase value with size and color. Brazil is the largest producer, but also topaz can be found in India, Pakistan, Russia, and China for the month of January. They say the prices are 400000 per kilogram and the most, uh, oh, actually, it's taking us into garnets. Garnets for January. Uh, and they don't have much information on that. Let's see. We'll take. We'll hit one more little thing here and see if we can find some more on it. Um, Peridot. Okay. Amethyst. If you hit their link, while well, it's quite um, more extensive with a lot more pictures, the next after Garnet, it says January's is uh, beautiful. It can be an off-brand ruby if you get the red varieties. The largest garnet found so far, they say, is 3,956 carats and um, is in the USA. Emerald is the eighth most expensive. I would think it would be more. $500,000 per kilogram, they said. The most expensive emerald, $5.5 million. Um, emeralds have a hardness of about 75 um, saying they are harder than rubies or sapphires. Hmm, I, yeah, I guess that could be. The darker the color, the more valuable. Opal is seven, very expensive. They say here $700,000 a kilogram, most expensive opals, a million dollars, they say. And, uh, of course, they can be found in Australia, United States of America. The website here is a little bit uh, wonky. Next, number six, is aquamarine. This represents March. Um, could be worth even more, they say. A shade of green-blue uh, can glow. The colors 
vary from pale aqua to blue. The rarest are the large clear crystals. Brazil has some weighing over 500,000 carats, about 7.5 to 8 on the hardness scale. Fifth is tanzanite, beautiful purple to blue tanzanite. They're saying a million dollars average price per kilogram. Boy, that's a lot. Um, only found in the small region of Tanzania. Also next, you've got blue sapphires. Um, sapphire is a corundum mineral, very sought after. September's birthstone. Tie with the ruby on the hardness scale. Ruby is next on the list of most valuable. July is the birthstone for rubies, about nine on the hardness scale, and uh, very beautiful. Alexandrite, this is next. I have always recommended alexandrite as a, well, I don't make, I don't give investment advice, but it, if, if you were to look into investment gemstones, this might be a good one to look at, and I've talked about it and why I feel that way. Alexandrite's quite beautiful, can have color changes. Um, yeah, very beautiful. Uh, can be difficult to cut. The largest Alexandrite was 141.92 carats. Next, the first, they say, is diamonds. Diamonds are the most expensive gemstone. Averaging $6 million per kilogram. The most expensive diamond was $71 million, they said. And, of course, we talk about diamonds quite a bit. Um, the pink sapphire diamond was last sold in 2017, known as one of the rarest gems in the world. But, of course, we've talked about rare gems. There's a lot of other rare gems. Red diamonds, of course, being the most valuable, most expensive. Let's talk about some gold mining. The Lena Hart property is a very old, very large gold and silver producing property. It was originally claimed as the Mount Harvard Lode in 1891. Ore was shipped from Mount Harvard every year from 1906 to 1918, with the exception of the year 1916, which no ore was shipped. Ore was shipped again in 1922 and 1925. There was a 1,200-foot-long tunnel. Actually, it was about 1,250-foot tunnel that had been opened up on the property in 1934. Doris Ruby Lode was defined within the workings of the Mount Harvard Mine. The Doris Ruby Mill was erected in 1937 to process the ore from the Mount Harvard mine. Ore was mucked out and processed between 1935 and 1938. It was reported that the mine was worked primarily for gold. Reported gold values averaged about an ounce per ton and the silver was about 6.8 ounces per ton. Now you can read about this, I'll tell you a little bit more about it, at goldrushexpeditions.com. Uh, they always are selling gold mines, so you could actually look into this gold mine if you're interested in purchasing one. Um, they have this information there. You can check it out. But I want to tell you a little bit more about the mine. It was shuttered or shut down by the War Act in 1939, and then the Leon Hardy family took possession of the claims and held them until 1999. 
1976 to 1977, the Jackson Mines took a lease from the Leonhardy family on the site. It's thought that this period, the mine was referred to as the Leonhardt, a poor translation of the family name. In 1983, remediation cells were installed to collect the water draining from the tunnel. The Leonhardt made annual shipments of ore working from spring through late summer and shipping off the highest grade ore at the end of the season. There was no record of the values or where they were sent. The Jackson Mines worked on the site from 1983 to 1995 when the work was halted due to a series of heavy snow years. What did I just do? So anyway, I think I just deleted that. So I wanted to tell you more about that mine. Let's see if I can find it again. How irritating. Why did I do that? Oh, let's see here if I can find it again. Darn it. Um, Bonnie Dune is another one I was thinking about maybe. Oh, here it is. Okay. I almost have it again. Bear with me here. Technical difficulties. All right, here it comes. We're, we'll continue our story here. Sorry about that. All right. We are almost there. Okay. Um, the highest grade ore was at the end of the season. No record of that. Um, the Jackson mines were, were halted because of the heavy snow years. That's where we left off. And then in 1996, the Jackson Mine Company submitted notice of expansion of the Ruby Vein. This included on-site buildings, a workforce of 12 men. They did a 10-year study of the water before expanding the operations, but Jackson declined to pay for the water study or wait the 10 years to continue work. In 1999, to reclaim their reclamation bond, the Jackson Mine Company backfilled the main audit at the Lean Heart and installed culverts, culverts rather, to route the water outside. The company noted at least 100 tons of ore were left on the claim with an average gold value of 1.1 ounce and 7 ounces of silver and also some copper at about 10%. Uh, that's a lot of copper if they're talking about 10% per ton. Uh, it's a 20-acre uh, claim, and there are workings there. They're not subject to the wilderness boundaries, okay, whatever. Uh, the property is in good condition, and there are excellent values shown in gold, silver, and copper. And that's about all it talks about. Beautiful, beautiful area uh, in Colorado, if you are interested in a gold mine. All kinds of gold history there in that area. So pretty cool if that is something you want to check out. Next, a beautiful, exceptionally rare pink diamond was found. This diamond, it is said here, if you go to news24.com, PICS, exceptionally rare giant pink diamond found in Les, Lesotho, and... Um, Marilisa von der Merwe tells us about it there, and she says this huge gemstone 
is the largest recovered in some 300 years. They've got several pictures of it here. It's quite beautiful. The diamond weighs 109.39 carats. It was recovered at the KO mine in Lesothuth. Oh, I'm saying that wrong. Soath, Lesoth, and the Storm Mountain spokesperson told uh, News 24 about this diamond. They've got a picture here. It's uncut. They have not given it a name yet. Um, the BBC reported that this uh, was found in Angolia, largest pink diamond to be found in 300 years at 170 carats, the biggest since the famous Daria I Noor, which is known as one of Iran's national jewels, um, which is 175 carats, though it is believed to be the largest part of a bigger diamond that was cut in two. So since then, this is the largest diamond ever ever found, according to this article. The Butha Buthi District mines the biggest kimberlite pipe in the Lesotho and has produced a number of exceptional pink diamonds. In recent years, these include the Pink Eternity, 47.81 carats in 19 in uh, 2022, the Pink Dawn, which was 25.97 carats, the Pink Placia, 21.68 carats, and then in 1921, uh, that was found, and then in, in, excuse me, 2021, and then in 2018, the Rose of Kao was found here, this beautiful, beautiful specimen. Estimates of uh, the value of this uh, are over $57 million in uh, value where other collectors have spent that much money. Of course, it would have to be cut and see how it would come out. Now, looking at the picture, I don't think they're going to get a 109-carat uh, you know, diamond out of this. To me, I think they're going to have a hard time getting one the fraction of the size because... It has a lot of inclusions in it. It's still a beautiful gemstone worth a ton of money, without a doubt, without a doubt. But um, to see one that would be cut out of this um, more than 25 carats, I'm just kind of eyeballing it and guessing. I'm not an expert on diamonds by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I'm not seeing a uh, diamond come out of this any bigger than 25 carats, just by glancing at it and looking at the different pictures. So we'll have to see what comes out of that. I'm sure we'll be hearing about that. Um, more pink diamonds in the news. All right, a new uh, Rhine Chasar or Rhine Chasaurus, which is found in Wyoming. Uh, this is a new species they believe they found some of its jawbone and fragments uh, what was once wyoming according to physics org phys.org uh, by justin jackson according to him this uh, was was a creature that was a lizard-like creature with a beak, a beak that ate plants uh, many many years ago it was a predecessor, they say, of birds, alligators, and dinosaurs that roamed the air, the area. This was found in a uh, on a reservation, I believe, 
and uh, they gave it a Native American name, which I, man, I'm, I have such a hard time with pronunciations. Ba Siwa. Ja-a-wa-sa. So that's how they have it broke apart to kind of try to pronunciate, pronunciate it or pronounce it, however you want to say that. Um, the taxidermy name of this new beast was created by studies First Nation co-authors of the Arafro language, meaning big lizard from the Alcova area. Alcova being an area of central Wyoming. So this is uh, a layer of sediment deposited uh, at the Popo Edgy Formation of Wyoming, the Jurassic area, which would have been rivers, lake beds at the time when Wyoming was part of northern Pangaea, the subcontent hundreds of millions of years ago, so they say. So pretty cool. If you want to read more about this, you can check that out at physics.org. New Rhinochosaurus, um, named B. Siliwu Koishi, found in Wyoming. Hopefully you can find that. All right, next. Okay, I had a reminder here about Mother's Day. We already talked about that. I did not forget it. Very happy about that. Um, at localnews1.org, the number one, they had a pretty cool article about a, uh, a geologist here in Waynesboro. Uh, this geologist was going to uh, partner with the Franklin County Rock and Mineral Club and... Um, talk about the area of uh, topography and mineral resources of the South Mountain. He was going to have a PowerPoint uh, presentation of geology of Adams and York counties and talk about uh, the rocks east of the South Mountain um, and this Waynesboro area, uh, this complex marine animal, the trilobite, and other fossils that were in the area. He was going to lead this trip out there, I believe, as well. They tried to put a, a pay a paywall on it, so I wasn't able to get much more than that. I clicked on it, the paywall came up, and then the, the words kind of faded out. So if you're in the Waynesboro area, I'm not sure what state that is, but uh, you might want to check that out. Viking Fashion. Viking fashion. Archaeologists have discovered an unusual gem. It's not a gem. It's, it's some gold jewelry is what it is. If you go to the timeshub.in, um, you can read it, the Times Hub. And uh, let's see. I don't know if they credit this with anyone, but they've got a picture of this jewelry. I always think that this ancient jewelry, especially when there's like rocks and gems in it. This time there wasn't, but I thought it was pretty cool because they said, and you just never know what you'll find, right? Um, this uh, uh, Miss Fletcher said that they x-rayed a unique jewelry found during the excavations of the intercity um, in eastern Norway. Now, so it was just a clump, basically, right? So they removed the loose dirt and they knew it was something. But once they looked at it under the x-ray, then they were like, okay, this is great. We have something very, very neat here. And then from that point, they could go through and uh, pick it apart very carefully and slowly, knowing that it was something 
uh, a treasure hidden in this clump of dirt. So I wanted to share that with you. It's a very short article, but uh, I thought it was something to think of. You know, when you find things, be careful. You just don't know what you got, okay? I think I just erased another story. I don't know why I am doing that today. I keep deleting stuff. Okay, we are going to talk about lapidary and minerals, so hang on tight. We've got uh, neptunite, we got moss agate, uh, and some other things that we are going to talk about. But I want to talk about the pot of gold mine in central Nevada. Um, this is a couple mining claims. I get emails you know, from different people that have different things, and I always try to share with you things that are different. This uh, is actually on eBay, um, and uh, you know, a lot of times a really cool little story comes with these, and the history of the area and whatnot is up there, and I just like to share that with you guys, should you be uh, happen to uh, be in the area or just interested in the story. This is in Nevada. It's an unpatented mining claim, just over 20 acres in the Mountain View District in Mineral County, Nevada. There's uh, mine shafts, two of them, an audit, trenches, tailing piles, things like that. Uh, they have directions on how to get there, and uh, they talk about the exploration potential. In this particular mining district in Mineral County, in this uh, Mountain View District, gold mining district or mining district, they have shear zones, which uh, have veins that are up to 25 feet wide, but two to four feet is more common. And you will see the copper oxides, the galena, the gold, the silver, uh, things like that um, in the staining of the rocks typically, but you might see it visible according to this. It says locating shear zones and faults should yield to even more discoveries. Um, there's a geology report written by Robert Holt on this uh, area that they recommend if you want to go in there. These meadow volcanics that happen, we've talked about these before. They create these shear zones and very high-grade deposits that can be found. Um, underlaying deposits are found as this uh, volcanic activity would break up the rocks and call the, cause these fissures and veins to come up through there. Uh, gold could sometimes find its way up there. The Mountain View District is referred to as a granite or uh, reservation district. Two mining camps in the district, the Granite and Mountain View, they are considered the same district now. Covers about a 60 square mile area from the northern end to the Wasuk Range. Pot of Gold is at the southern end of the district in the western foothills of the Wasuk Mountains. Uh, Walker Lake Indian Reservation was established in 1874 and belongs to the Walker Lake Paiute tribe. The reservation is to the east of the claims, which are on BLM land. But uh, so it, it seems that it's not in the reservation per se. In 1904, gold was discovered by William Wilson in this area. The tribe opted to open part of the reservation lands to prospectors two years earlier. In 1908, there was 55 leases in the district. Smaller veins, attractive to individuals with small teams, but uh, not justifying a large investment. There are good high-grade veins on the surface, 
And uh, famous camps were booming at this time, such as Goldfield and Tonopah. So the competition for mining labor was high, but smaller groups sometimes would go to these type of claims where they could find their own fortune instead of working for someone else. Mountain View Camp's earliest production was in 1908. Silver gold ore was taken to a five-stamp mill in Nordyke, about 15 miles away, for processing. Later, Mountain View established its own five-stamp mill, and various companies continued to produce gold and silver and copper in this district to 1916. By the 1920s, the district had three active <coughs> companies that recorded production. Through the mid part of the 20th century, there's not a lot of records. Um, you know, during the war years, people didn't like to report what they were doing because they weren't supposed to be gold mining, but they would kind of do it anyway. Um, there are some high producing mines in the area, the Can Candelera, the Rawhide, the Borealis, and others. The regional geology in the Pot of Gold and larger Mountain View District are part of the Basin and Range um, Physiographic Province, is what it says. The Basin and Range Province covers most of Nevada and consists of a narrow northeast trending mountain ranges between flat, arid valleys and basins. Um, the Walker Mineral Belt area is high-density Parallel strike-slip faults extending from Reno to Las Vegas all the way along California-Nevada border. Faulting and volcanic activity make the Walker Lake favorable for hosting gold and silver deposits, including some of the most precious metal mining districts in the U.S., including the Comstock, Goldfield, Tonopah, Bullfrog, Mineral Ridge, and Mount, uh, Round Mountain. The district itself... Uh, is adjoined to the Yernington District in Lyons County to the west, the Granite and Mountain View. Two notable camps in Mountain View District were about a mile and a half from each other near the north end of the Wasuk Range, about nine miles southwest of Shurza, huh. something like that. The Waka River Range mostly consists of granodorite rocks, probably from the Creatius area on the western side of the range. There's lava flows that cap these granodite uh, uh, zones, and these are also cut by dikes of granodite, uh, apolite, and agite, uh, and andesite throughout the range. Most of the veins that are explored have occurred Along these dikes and veins are found with prior, primarily quartz and iron oxide with copper ores. Copper ore carrying gold and silver ores have been found, as well as some oxidized gold derived from mineral-infused waters and vaporizing into the geological structure. Beyond precious metals, the geological sampling that was completed in the 1980 showed some uranium and thorium in the area. Thorium is going to be hot, by the way, if, if, um, because they're not going to be able to do all the green energy that they want. Um, if you do some research behind the scenes, you'll find out thorium is much safer than uh, uranium. It, the half-life is a lot quicker, so it breaks down very quickly and say, uh, much safer, easier to handle. Doesn't, it's not quite as scary and dangerous 
as a regular hot uranium is. And uh, low levels of uranium are often found together with gold in this area. Local geology, fair amount. Um, we talked about that a little bit. Kind of repetitious there. So that looks like a pretty cool area if you want to do some gold panning and gold mining. How would you like to know how to start gem cutting? Well, our friends at Rock and Gym have a lengthy article and all kinds of information. I recommend you subscribe to their magazine. They send me emails. Uh, they sent me one with a link. The story's by Amy Gersack, and um, it's sponsored by Ultratech. Uh, Ultratech makes um, faceting tools and offers... Uh, access to online videos and things like that if you want to link up to this and maybe get some free training. You can start gym cutting. Uh, this is a question people have asked many, many times. And uh, if you have the knack and this is something you want to do, great. Um, a lot of older people get into faceting, but uh, there is a desire to get younger people into it. And that is uh, something that is happening. Some young people have got into it. Ultratech team enjoys hearing from its customers and often innovates based on suggestions. For example, they created a digital angle display, DAD, that reads 1 100th of a degree. When you're gym cutting, you deal with a lot of angles. The key is to be able to repeat the angle every single time. No one else has that uh, no one else has diet, can dial it down as precisely, say, they claim, and they're very proud of this device. So they're saying this is a good one if you're a beginner. Um, it, you know, I won't say that this is easy. If you want to get into gym cutting, something easy, then start with cabochons. If you want to do faceting, this might be something for you. Um, the company has a connection from Mind Market. Um, she's basically focused on the uh, Tanzanian market and talks about Tanzania, Tanzania, Tanzania as an exceptional gemstone deposit, uh, an area where students should come from because that's where the rocks come from, that's where the gemstones come from. Now, Noreen utilizes the Ultratech V5 for her students and her own work. Students go home with a finished stone on their first day. So... Is it possible to pass it quickly? Apparently, you can do it. There are people who offer classes and who will walk you through it where you can finish <coughs> excuse me, a faceted gemstone in one day. Um, she's tried a lot of different stones. She thinks this, uh, or a lot of different machines, she thinks this one is pretty good and uh, has uh, correct, is able to make corrections as well. She gives priority to pavilions first because they are responsible for the brilliance of the stone. The drawback in cutting this way is to possibly cut more of the stone away than what you would prefer if the angles aren't spot on. We first cut in our heads, she said. I explain the laws of light refraction within the stone before you cut it. Each stone has its own properties. If the stone has a higher refraction index, you cut it at lower angles. Noreen sees the beauty in her stones as well as her students through exceptional talent, high-quality, ultra-tech faceting machines. She's created a generation of gemstone artists. Um, it also talks about a Stephen Taylor uh, man, 
Cheney, who is uh, best known as Stephen Taylor, the designer, who uh, has even made uh, tooth jewelry for people to put in their teeth. That's pretty crazy. He does wire wrapping. Um, so all kinds of things he's done during his creative side. Always learning is a key to cutting stones. You want to learn as much as you can. The knowledge will pay off. Um, and getting trained, getting hooked up with a lapidary and uh, mineral club that has faceting classes um, is a great way to get started. There's also videos and books you can look up um, on eBay or whatnot if you want to buy them or go to your local Rockhound, support your local Rockhound. Definitely join up. Find a lapidary uh, mineral club in your area and learn about it. They have this one machine called the Fantasy Machine. Now, maybe you've seen some of the new faceted gemstones. They're not just faceted like old school. They have some awesome designs that are carved in on the bottom sometimes, sometimes on the top. This fantasy machine gives you the latitude needed to explore the geometric patterns that uh, catch your eye, so said uh, the Mr. Stevens here, and you have an infinite amount of styles that you can do. So you can really, once you get past the basics, um, you can do a lot. One of his pieces, Stevens' pieces, was even put in the Museum of Maine, it was a beautiful 25-carat bicolored main tourmaline from the Dunton Jim uh, Quarry and offset with two locally sourced tourmalines cut with the Ultratech Fantasy Machine set in golden moose antlers creating the ultimate celebration of New England jewelry. And it goes on and on. Uh, talks about the hobby trends. Um, is a lot of 20-somethings getting into the trade, and uh, there is some competition and degree of secrecy within the gym cutting community for the most modern cuts, but people are sharing this stuff, and you can start out on quartz and learn the basic cuts. Quartz is uh, affordable, very affordable gemstone, and then move on from there, okay? So that's how you kind of start gemstone cutting if you're going to do the faceting type. All right, so um, let's talk about Neptunite, and then we'll talk about the pumpkin, um, pumpkin moss agate. Okay, hopefully I didn't close it all. I've got some of it open. Um, Neptunite, minerals.net tells us about the mineral Neptunite. Now, it sounds like Neptune. That's uh, because the name of the gemstone comes from the god, which we'll talk about. Neptunite is relatively recent material being discovered in the early 1900s. Neptunus, the Roman god of the sea, is uh, of a mythology and derived from its similarity to uh, Argin, which is named after the Norse sea god. Neptunite forms a solid solution series with Mag... Magan... Ni... Pu... Tunite, which is a, magn a magnanese dominant variant of neptunite, whereas neptunite is an iron dominant member. Much of nep neptunite crystals are from San Benito uh, County in California, but they're found all over, and we'll talk about those locations. Deeply embedded in a thick natrolite, such specimens are prepared 
for collectors by dissolving the surrounding uh, netrolite in an acid to expose the neptunite crystals. Typical sharp contrast between the black neptunite on the white netrolite matrix makes a very aesthetic mineral specimen. Bentonite, a rare mineral associated with this locality, may also be present with the neptunite, creating a very desirable and classic mineral combination. Um, the composition of this is a silica of potassium, sodium, lithium, iron, manganese, and titanium. So you would think it would be really hard, but the hardness is about five or six on the hardness scale. So, you know, I guess you could make a gemstone out of this if you really wanted to. I don't know how well it cuts. Let's see. The uh, sharply formed prismatic crystals with square cross-section and distinct pointed termination. Crystals sometimes intersect at an angle and may be doubly terminated, occasionally also thin tabulature crystals and columnar crystals are found. It is opaque with slight translucency on some edges because it is so dark and, and thick in color. Um, that can be kind of hard. Let's see, the cleavage uh, fracture is conchoidal. So this is going to be kind of like probably uh, cutting a jasper or uh, something like that. But it does say it is somewhat brittle. So if you drop it, um, yeah, could could break. Uh, color and habits, perfect cleavage. Um, they don't talk about the color too much. We did talk about it already. We'll talk about it a little bit more. They've got pictures of it. It's almost black, but when you hold it up to the light, it can look slightly blue. Let's go check out what... Uh, mineraldat.org uh, says, or, or uh, mindat.org. It's M-I-N-D-A-T dot O-R-G. This is a great resource um, for all kinds of things. You see Neptunite there. They have some examples from uh, Nambia, beautiful specimens. They've got some other beautiful specimens from San Benito County in California, and then uh, a couple different specimens there. They talk about it being... Uh, the Neptunite group um, give you some of the basic information that we already went over. And uh, it can be deep blood red in splinters, although the color is black. So if you were to splinter it up, that is what you might possibly see. Um, when you look at the crystal structure, this thing is very complex. Um, they have a uh, picture of the crystal, uh, crystal structure there. Very unique, very strong. Um, some of the main uh, countries where you can find this, there's a map down at the bottom. Looks like it's found uh, scattered around the world. Some uh, relevant spots would be Australia, New South Wales, Brazil, um, about three different areas there. Canada, you can find it in Newfoundland and uh, Labrador areas, uh, Quebec, Germany. Uh, you can find this in Germany, Greenland, Hungary, Ireland. Ireland's got it there. Our friends in Ireland, Libya, uh, Mongolia, Nambia, Russia, um, Slovakia, uh, USA, of course. You can see it in California, Montana, New Mexico, and North Carolina. And uh, hey, when it comes to rockets and rocks and minerals, um, we all have a common interest. We're all friends there, as far as that goes, guys, guys and gals. All right, so next, um, moss agate. Um, there is a 
uh, moss agate called a pumpkin moss agate. And I want to see if I can find that again. I did accidentally close that. So I will see if I can find it. But typically agate is um, going to be a chalcedony, right? A chalcedony. So hopefully this is it. I'm not sure. Let's see. It's got to be... Is that it? Nope, that's not it. Darn it. Um, and it has the mossy part of it is actually... Um, it comes from um, hornbill, hornblen. So the hornblen, when it is green, it can look like a moss. And this is what I found as an explanation over at uh, the mineral identification at uh, mindat.org. And um, I cannot find the pumpkin deal, but if you look up pumpkin, um, maybe I can find it after this. Let me see. Let me look this up real quick. Places you can find moss agate, of course, all over the United States, um, uh, Russia, uh, Nambia, Mongolia, Libya, Ireland, Hungary, Greenland, Germany. Oh, no, wait. Made a mistake. Take that back. Moss agate. Okay, here it is. Calcedony containing dense inclusions of hornblende that cause the pattern to resemble moss. It's not a true agate because it doesn't have banding, but... Uh, it is a chalcedony. Not too much else information on that right there. Let me go back a little bit here and see what we can find. Um, that is about it. Um, I've got one more story for you, though. Let me try and... I've got one more story for you. Pumpkin moss agate. Here we go. Pumpkin moss agate. See if I can find that one. Darn it, I had it right here, and then I lost it. Okay, here we go. Uh, they've got some on Etsy here, apparently. Hopefully, they tell me something about it. No, they have They have actually agate carved in the shape of a pumpkin. So, <laughs> this was a... Basically, the moss was not green on this. It was a orange color, which uh, could be iron, I guess, that makes it a redder color. Um, it could be something else that makes it that color, but um, this is something if you look up online, you can find it. All right, I want to thank everybody for hanging in there. Remember, I do first time, first take. Um, the story for today is a story of crushing ore and um, seeing what you got. And this is a story from my friend um, Cole Younger. And um, you can look him up on Facebook if you want. He has uh, an eBay site uh, and sells turquoise and rocks and minerals and different things. And uh, you can contact him on Facebook if you want, Cole Younger. And he will tell you all about it. All right. So here's his story. He says, I was running some assays. At <laughs> Boy, I started that off good. I was running some assays yesterday. The first step is you crush your ore. You want to put this in your mortar, mortar and pistle and crush it up very, very fine. Then you take 50 grams and mix it with your flux. Place it in your crucible and case it over with an eighth inch of salt. Then you turn this all into a molten mass. Yes, 
Then one of the ingredients added is a lead oxide. Another is flour to turn this lead oxide into a lead bead. The lead bead, the lead rather, trickles down and collects any noble metals on its gravity induced these uh, are induced and plummet to the bottom of the crucible. This happens for about 40 minutes. In a low oxygen state with the convection currents stirring and mixing and bringing the noble metals into the lead pool at the bottom. This is then taken out of the furnace and poured into your mold. The lead sinks to the bottom and the slag flows over it after it cools for a while. You tip the mold over and hammer the lead bead to get rid of the slag. This is placed in a, a cupel in a high oxygen environment or a patium. Now you start with 50 grams of ore and there are a million grams in a ton. So you weigh the bead and times it by 20,000, and that gives you the grams per ton. He says, I just built a new couple furnace so that I can couple larger couples in quantity. That larger silver bead represents thousands of grams of silver per ton. The smaller represents hundreds of grams per ton. I typically pre-mix and place the second charge for each crucible in the plastic containers. So Cole Younger has a really neat way of doing his own assays. Um, he has gathered information over the years. He's added his own knowledge to it and perfected a way of doing his own assays, which is uh, kind of nice, kind of a nice thing to do. So, guys, I want to thank you for tuning in. Again, you can email me at RadicalRocksUSA at gmail.com and give me any suggestions you have for the show. Love to hear them. Love to hear your ideas. Until next time, remember, rock hounds don't die. They petrify.